Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy and a happy Mother's Day to all the mums listening, especially those mums close to me. That's Linda, Gita and to my dear, dear wife, Gabby. And I'll be home soon. Tomorrow, we're going to be hearing what the Victorian government has in store for us with the lifting of the state of emergency. But odds are, we will still be spending a lot of time at home in the next couple of weeks. And at home, there are lots of temptations in the fridge, in the pantry and on the telly. Professor Peter Bruckner is a sports physician, researcher and author, and he's also a good friend of the show. He'll be telling us what we can do to stay healthy, even though we can't get to the gym or the pool or even play a friendly game of basketball at the moment. And then there's the kitchen. What should we be eating and what should we be avoiding? Peter will be giving us some strategies to stick to the things we know we should be doing. Now, prior to medicine, Dr. David Griffin studied microbiology and immunology. Then he completed a master's degree in public health. He's a very smart young man. He is now an infectious disease consultant at a very large public hospital, the same one that uh, EpiPen and I work at, which basically means he's one of the really smart docs who can swan into a room and make a diagnosis while everyone else is scratching their heads. In fact, infectious disease doctors are like Dr. House, but without the addiction and personality issues. They are brilliant detectives. Today, David will be giving us an update from the COVID front lines. And as you're snuggling up in bed on this sunny, sunny, wintry morning, who else would you want to be hearing from but Nurse EpiPen and Dr. G-Spot? EpiPen, our nurse manager, will be live, safely isolated in the studio, about 10 metres to my right. And Dr. G-Spot will be zooming in via the interweb. Sure, it's a technical Rubik's Cube and I'm in charge, but what could possibly go wrong? Do we have you, Dr. G-Spot? You do, Dr. Malpractice. Thanks so much for having me via Zoom. Isn't this fantastic technology? Who would have thought it would work so well? <laughs> it's brilliant. I love how necessity is breeding invention is... here. Thank you, pandemic, for pushing us along in this space. It certainly has. Now, you have some non-C19 news. Well, that's, I think it can be applied to C19, but um, technically speaking, no, it's not C19 news. Um, I've... I've been really interested in a paper that was in neurology recently by uh, Kumar et al. And it's about um, the impacts of yoga helping us with migraines. Because uh, we know that um, about 50% of people don't respond well to um, typical medications mm. to treat migraines. Mm. They just have to write out the symptoms, which mm. is rather unpleasant. But uh, this study showed that um, medication plus yoga had really beneficial impacts and it involved 114 people between mm-hmm. 18 and 50 years mm-hmm. who had episodic migraines and um, and that meant that they had 14 headaches per month. So that's very frequent. Yeah. And so there was a medication group and a medication plus yoga group and they found that um, the medication plus yoga group had, um, had better outcomes in terms of their... Um, headache frequency, pain intensity, uh, use of medication, and also how much the migraines interfered with their daily lives. 
And this yoga was just a couple of times a week, not like that intense Bikram yoga mm. where you're sweating for mm. hours. So just these little things help them so mm. much with their migraines. And I think when we're in lockdown, mm. and we're going to be talking about this more today, yoga is something we can engage with to help our well-being, even if we're not experiencing migraines. Did they say what type of yoga they were using? Was it, uh, you know, because there's a when, when I when I say yoga, um, I, there's a whole range of different styles that come to my mind. I've got lots of friends that do yoga and, you know, one does lots of standing poses and one just does, you know, one in heat. And what, what type did they use? Do you know, in the paper, they, they were uh, guided by professional instructors, but they didn't specify exactly which type. I was looking at this. Yeah, so yeah. I would encourage people to have a quick look at the paper themselves. Um, but yes, uh, I think... I don't think it needs to be hardcore. I think it is literally just <laughs> the movement of the body in a mindful way. Fantastic so, yeah, stuff. I think I'm pretty sure yoga in any form could be beneficial, particularly in this challenging time. Mm-hmm. EpiPen, are you there? Are you joining us? Uh, am I there? You am are I, here. Am I here? You're here. How about oh, that? my Lord. This is such a challenge today, Dr. Mal. Now, what? listeners won't know because this isn't uh, video, but um, in front of me I've got uh, Dr. G-Spot. <laughs> Dr. G-Spot on Zoom. I'm, I'm losing it. Got you on FaceTime, but also you're in a studio about what about uh, five metres to my right, but I can see it. So you're going to tell us when we talked about our show today in our production meeting about Mother's Day because you're a mum. Well, I'm a mum. Absolutely. I've got two gorgeous children that are older now, 22 and 26. Mm. Um, but I was just looking at, I was Googling what Mother's Day is and I know it's a bit commercial and there's a tradition of giving gifts. But I looked at the history of it and it, what I could find was um, Janet Hayden, a resident mm. of Leichhardt in Sydney, started a campaign in 1924 to collect gifts for lonely aged mothers. It's a sweet thing. I'm not sure what lonely aged mothers exactly means, but that's where it started and that's been going for a long time. But I think it has turned a bit commercial. Mm. But I do always also want to congratulate all the mothers and grandmothers, but also those that do not have mothers that have passed away or have lost them somewhere during their lifetime. And also people that couldn't be mothers from mm. choice or inability. We mm. just want to recognise you too and mm. think mostly maybe we could make it Women's and Mother's Day. Now, not only are you a mother, you're also a nurse. And today is another special day. Well, it's not actually today, Dr. Mao. Tomorrow? But no, keep going. <laughs> Next week, sometime <laughs> this year. So Tuesday the 12th is International Nurses Day. Yep. It's an international day celebrated on the 12th of May because it's the anniversary. Okay, Dr. Mal, name a very famous nurse. Florence Nightingale. Got it. So it's the anniversary of her birth. And each year um, that we celebrate that um, this day, uh, the 12th of May, to to think about, congratulate, applaud and recognise nurses. So in the theme, there's a couple of themes for two for 2020. So I was looking at the WH um, website and and it's a global sensation about nurses when the WHO designated um, 2020. They didn't know about this pandemic, but it's the year of the nurse and the midwife. 
So I and I've been thinking about some of the nurses that I've been working with or what I've read about nurses and something came across my email. In fact, it was from my sister from uh, an ethics website called Bioethics and it's a story about a nurse who had been, um, she's the director of clinical nursing and services in uh, Hertz and Essex Fertility Centre, Debbie Evans. And she's written this beautiful story about being a nurse for 35 years and during the pandemic, it's absolutely broken her heart to tell people in the IVF clinics that we can't open them. Mm. And the patients, the women have been saying, no, please, you can't close, you can't close. It's my last cycle. I just, I have to. Mm. And they've been in tears. And normally these wonderful nurses in the IVF, and it could be in any clinic. It could be in a spleen clinic. It could be in a cancer clinic. The nurses have this very strong connection with their patients because mm. they spend so much time with them. Mm, yeah. And yeah. and the problem is that when when you have somebody that's very distressed in front of you, the natural thing is to reach out and give them a cuddle, give them a hug, touch them. And it's added this terrible dilemma to nurses and their yeah. patients that they can't be comforted. And um, and she, she quoted she quoted a this is Debbie Evans she quoted a Mahatma Gandhi um, statement the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others oh. and I'll say that again the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others and she said I've tried to be true to this ideal and hope my patients feel nurtured and cared for in these craziest of crazy times. And then I was just looking at what's happening in Australia and really if we think about the nurses in the front line, so these are where they're in in, a, in close contact with people. They're in respiratory clinics, district nurses, aged care. And then one that we have heard a little bit about and have been preparing for um, an, a big influx of patients is in the intensive care units apart from in the general wards. But the intensive care units take a special type of nurse. And one of the things is that they have to be very technically advanced and also be very supportive of the patient underneath all these tubes. And they care... And the, and the families as well. And the families yeah. sitting... Well, in the old days, pre pandemic they would sit with the patients they would come in talk to them now it's very limited and intensive care units offer 24 hours a day seven days a week intimate care with these patients but um dr mel are you aware of what happens for a nurse in the um icu setting well, now they've got to put on all this PPE stuff yep. and, and they don't actually get to, to – well, if they touch the patient, it's always through a couple of layers of, you know, gloves and, and PPE. So yep. that would make it difficult because I know that – I remember – I mean, I, I remember this study coming out about um, neonatal intensive care nurses and how just touch was such an important thing for everybody in, in, in NICU. I imagine it's a similar thing in, in ICU as well. Yes. And, and so when they – put this PPE, so protective um, equipment on, personal protective equipment, PPE. It, they, they have to have their scrubs underneath, then they wear a white gown, then they have two pairs of gloves, they have a mask, they have goggles, they have a hair net, they have rubber boots over their shoes. Mm. And 
they it's like a, a, um, a sauna. Yeah. So the nurses yeah. are sweating yeah. underneath all of this equipment. They cannot bring a water bottle into their room. Yeah. They are not allowed to – they have to be staggered for loo stops so because so they can't drink too much. Yeah. And it's it's – Oh my gosh, it's it's really really tough. And then there's also the looming threat of of COVID as well. That's you know, on top yes, of that. On yeah. top of that, yeah. and and so I'm I'm sure some people have heard about the nurses in ICU and around in ED that it may be at the forefront of in contact with some patient that might be positive, is that um, they're very anxious about spreading it and taking it home. So some nurses have. Um, taken up apartments near their hospitals yeah. so that they don't go home yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's yeah, they, that, and they have to be so hyper vigilant about not passing it to themselves so, their work colleagues so what do you reckon we should do on tuesday international nurses day how, how could we best support our nurses uh, i well this, i think it's some of the movements have been like in england where they've gone out into the street banging and clapped banging <laughs> pots of pans yeah. Um, people driving past, yeah. um, clapping the hospitals. Yeah. Um, there was uh, there was a florist, a big florist group, who um, ha- couldn't sell their flowers, and they dropped them all out at the front of the um, that big hospital where you and I work. And um, they were giving the flowers out. They didn't specifically say for nurses, but I just think, I just even mm-hmm. think putting. F- a minute away to think of nurses on Tuesday might be an incredibly lovely gesture. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And we have on the line Dr. David Griffin. You there, Dave? David. Um, yeah, I am. How are you going? <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. How are you coping with the uh, pandemic as an ID physician? Um, so things have been obviously relatively busy. We're, we're lucky relative to other countries not to have sort of borne the brunt uh, of uh, the worst of COVID-19 yeah. uh, in Australia. Certainly no time for complacency, but um, it, it's certainly been a busy time. I was saying to EpiPen last uh, last show that you know normally I see the ID physicians walking around the hospital, cool characters, cup of coffee, chatting, got all the time in the world. Now you guys are running around like uh, there's uh, like you, you know there's, there's just like absolute pressure on you guys. Are you feeling that? Yeah, I guess the, some would say it's a time to shine. I guess. Um, <laughs> Good for you. The job of an ID physician is obviously a broad one. Yeah. Um, obviously, day to day, we, um, you know, instead of walking around the hospital, we see patients. Uh, we're involved in um, sort of the direct and indirect care of patients. And I guess some some of our care during the during the COVID nineteen pandemic has sort of become more of a managerial one, which mm-hmm. is, is sort of day to day part of our uh, our job. But um, you know, ensuring that. An important part of an ID physician's job is to make sure that infections don't spread in hospital, yeah. uh, and to make sure there are uh, you know policies and um, and whatnot in place uh, to to manage uh, these confirmed and suspected cases of coronavirus in, in the hospital, and and, and that sort of has obviously fallen to us during this pandemic yeah. as well. A time to shine. Uh, so, so David, you've got a bit of an interest in the background of pandemics. So, you've written an article in the Conversation about looking at 
previous pandemics that the world's had to experience. Can you could you talk to us a little bit about that or the standout um, pandemics? Yeah, I mean uh, that that article that we wrote was actually a follow up article to a, an article we. I wrote with uh, Justin Denham, another ID physician, in the middle of 2017, uh, which was looking at sort of um, uh, sort of how we're overcoming uh, sort of several deadly infectious diseases. Um, and, and I guess it's a little bit surreal, but not entirely unexpected. In 2020, we've got another global pandemic. Um, but, you know, I think we're far better placed to deal with this pandemic because of the lessons of um, previous ones, um, right through from the black, um, the black, uh, death, uh, which sort of ravished Europe and uh, the Middle East and Asia um, from the sort of 14th century, um, you know, right through to more modern um, uh, pandemics like the 1918 flu pandemic, um, which again sort of ravished the world. Um, but you know, important taught us important lessons about um, sort of social distancing uh, and, and sort of more public health measures that can be taken to try and overcome um, a, a respiratory pathogen. Uh, we also talked a little bit about um, HIV and I guess HIV, um, the HIV t- pandemic taught us a really important lesson, I think, and that is that words matter. Um, uh, you know, early in the, uh, the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic, uh, you know, it was referred to as the gay-related immunodeficiency, um, the gay plague, those sorts of things. And likewise, in the coronavirus uh, pandemic, we've heard terms like the Wuhan virus, the China virus, um, and those, those sort of terms don't really help. They, they sort of just breed xenophobia, which can, um, you know, confer unnecessary stress, anxiety, and, and ostracisation of some groups who are actually quite, you know, potentially quite vulnerable. Uh, since infection discourage testing, those sorts of things, but just yeah. overall aren't helpful. Do you know, um, David, one of the things that uh, I remember hearing about the Spanish flu was that... Uh, the reason it was called the Spanish flu was because the Spanish newspapers were the first to publish reports about it because other uh, countries banned their newspapers from publishing reports about it, whereas uh, it actually didn't start in Spain. No, that's right. Um, I mean, the, one of the, the thoughts is that uh, Spain had a relatively free and open media at the time, whereas several other governments, particularly within Europe, um, had to state-led media, uh, which uh, sort of suppressed... Um, the, the flu pandemic, uh, you know, in, in sort of local areas. Um, you know, some, some think that perhaps the Spanish flu actually arose from the United States, Southeast Asia. Um, it's a little bit unclear, but, um, yeah, certainly, it, you know, we, we are fairly certain that it didn't come from Spain. But, uh, it, you know, it carries that title. Uh, David, I mean, just where were we up to? Are we calling it uh, C nineteen, COVID? Uh, you know, the pandemic. What's the, what's the what's the okay term around the hospital? Yeah, I mean, I think the word on the street, so to speak, is yeah. COVID nineteen. Right. Um, and, and you know that sort of that terminology is really important. Um, obviously, there, there there is sort of um, there's there's also a term SARS coronavirus two. You know, that's sort of the the scientific name for the actual virus itself, but the clinical syndrome we refer to as COVID-19, but, you know, we've all seen it sort of evolve, that terminology evolve over time. Mm. Um, Could you, uh, with regard to testing, um, where are we up to? Who gets tested at the moment? So at the moment, uh, all uh, Australians, and I guess I'm speaking predominantly from a Victorian perspective, but we're encouraging people who have even mild illnesses at the moment, um, which could be compatible with coronavirus, um, to get tested. And there are lots of testing centres, obviously, around 
um, around Melbourne and the state. Um, you know, the, the formal directive for um, a suspected case is someone with either a fever um, or respiratory symptoms, um, and then a more expanded criteria to people who are known to be contacts uh, with uh, patients with confirmed uh, coronavirus. And and what about this other new little symptom that's pretty new that's popped up? I think it's been observed in the past, but anosmia. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. There's several um, sort of theories around why that might be the case. So anosmia essentially is an inability to smell, and some people describe that as a, an inability to taste, and that's because obviously um, our sense of smell is actually really important mm. um, in our sense of taste um, as well. Um, so anosmia uh, has been documented um, as a symptom. And I, I, anecdotally, I've certainly heard people describe that as their only symptom. You know, I lost my sense of smell or lost my sense of taste and got a test and it was positive and otherwise you know, they've had a, a very you know, mild uh, illness or no other symptoms at all. Um, and, and I guess why exactly um, you know, people experience that, we're not entirely sure. Um, one theory is that you know, the receptor for the virus is actually um, sort of in the, the back of the nose, um, which obviously is where uh, the centre for our um, sense of smell, so the receptor is concentrated in that area um, and might have an impact directly on our sense of smell that way. How, how common is that, David, the anosmia? Um, I've not seen formal uh, reports, mm-hmm. um, but I, I would say that people report it sort of at moderate frequency. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't put a figure on that for you. Yeah, yeah. Look, th- there was a really interesting paper which you forwarded on to us uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine, and for those not in the medical game, the New England Journal is probably the, uh, the, the pinnacle uh, peer-reviewed medical journal. And uh, there was a lovely piece called uh, COVID-19, A Reminder to Reason, written by uh, two, I think they're both clinicians from Harvard Medical School. So, you know, impressive uh, credential set of credentials there. One of the things they talk about there is this thing called, we need to, they say that, you know, you can't just try things because it might work, um, which is very tempting to do in business and in other forms of life, you know, just do something rather than doing nothing and sitting back. But in clinical medicine, that's not always the, the best thing to do. Could you take us through the reasoning for that? Yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, that was a really impressive article, actually. Yeah. I think one of the one of the authors is uh, um, a medical student, and it was a really oh. nice reflection. Sorry, sorry. Let me just um, command bold, uh, underline that a medical student gets published in the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> no, I, I, I would spend my life trying to get published. Wrong. Wow, that's amazing. Sorry, you go on. Remember, yeah, I, I certainly, uh, yeah. it, I guess it's one of yeah, every clinician or researcher's goal is to get a paper in yeah. you know, a, a, a journal like the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. Um, in any case, I guess, um, so the, what they were referring to initially um, was the, um, the sort of quotes from several businessmen uh, and, and one from uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, I think, Yes. Um, where he essentially said, you know, in time of crisis, you know, you need to try something. If it doesn't work, admit it, uh, and then try something else. Um, but in medicine, that's not really our approach. Um, you know, we try to take, you know, we. Uh, yeah, the article also refers to this idea of a, um, a rational emotional scale. And as clinicians, we're sort of trained to try and provide evidence-based practice. You know, there, there's obviously a, um, a tendency in a crisis to want to try something, but, 
you know, the, 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 there's obviously a risk of harm in doing that. And I, I guess we've seen that a little bit with sort of a rush for treatments like um, hydroxychloroquine and cithromycin, these are drugs that, you know, have their own sort of set of side effects uh, as well. Mm. Um, and, and I guess that transition, making that transition from what looks good in a test tube to what actually looks good uh, in a patient um, and doesn't cause them unnecessary harm um, is a really fine and important balance um, mm. in medicine. So I guess it's about the ethics, isn't it? That, you know, in business, if you try something that doesn't work, people don't usually die. You know, you might not sell a car or you might not be able to build a building or you might lose some money. But here, you know, people's lives are at stake and trying something just because you want to try something and do nothing has major consequences. It also has an important flow-on effect. For example, you know, with a hydroxychloroquine, you know, yeah. there, there are people who genuinely need that for predominantly rheumatological conditions. Um, and if people go and sort of stockpile that medication, yeah. um, that means that the people who genuinely need it for evidence-based reasons um, can't access it. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen a couple of articles in the paper about that and certainly uh, journals from overseas. EpiPen. So um, what do you think Clive Palmer's going to do with his three million-odd doses of hydro- hydroxychloroquine? So oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I couldn't speculate, to be honest. Um, I hope it gets, gets used in a, a reasonable way before the expiry yeah. date runs out. Yeah. Oh, of course, because this stuff goes off, doesn't it? It's got a yes. use by date. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, David, I was just wondering, how, how did you get into infectious diseases? Um, obviously, you, you did medicine, but were you always thinking of doing ID, infectious diseases, or how did that happen for you? Um, I think, I mean, there were several sort of key events that occurred. Um, firstly, I, I started off uh, in a basic science degree. So from year 12, I didn't get straight into medicine. I studied biomedical science first and um, focused during that course on um, uh, on microbiology and immunology. found these little critters fascinating, quite frankly, that something so um, so small could have such a tremendous impact on not only individuals, um, you know, manipulating the immune system, those sorts of things, but having huge implications on, you know, society um, as a whole. Um, and, and then um, obviously got into medical school. Um, I was lucky to be surrounded by quite um, great mentors um, who sort of really encouraged me in sort of areas of research. Um, I uh, had the privilege of going on a, a placement uh, in Vanuatu uh, in the South Pacific um, and there looked after patients with tuberculosis, things like leprosy. Um, uh, you know, infections that we we don't commonly see um, in Australia. Um, tuberculosis is obviously uh, alive and well, but leprosy, for example, we, we don't tend to see in Australia. Mm. Um, and and you know, that, to me, really highlighted um, that the experience as a whole, not necessarily just with tuberculosis and leprosy, sort of really highlighted um, as a whole... Um, sort of the importance of sort of social determinants um, in these people's lives. I mean, fundamentally, the difference between some of the patients that I was seeing there, um, and, and I was that I was lucky enough to have been born, the, you know, in a developed country, um, whereas you know, some of these patients, frankly, were living in overturned cars, mm. um, and, and as, as such, were still sort of suffering from some of the you know, basic things that we now have under control by vaccination. Mm. You know, important, you know, basic public health. Um, measures, um, and then throughout the obviously my medical training, um, again was sort of surrounded by 
um, great people, infectious diseases, um, and, and so the interest continues to develop. That's a that's a thing about you guys in in infectious disease. You like to travel, don't you? You're always going somewhere, <laughs> like travel medicine, really. I mean, it's such an. I mean, so it's, patients. It's it's fantastic swapping you know swapping travel stories while you know a patient um, is having fevers and things like that. You can you get some travel tips. Um, you know, compared um, travel experiences, and it's actually a really great way to build that patient rapport, and you can share an experience. David, um, just in the, the minutes we've got remaining, where do you see the pandemic heading? I mean, look, it's, it's so hard to predict, but if you were to put kind of odds on where we're going to be in six months' time, and nobody's going to hold you to this, where do you reckon we'll be in terms of control of the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, looking into my crystal ball here. Yeah, looking into your crystal ball. It's very hard to predict. You know, I, I think... The, the recent emergence uh, of the cluster uh, the meatworks in the yeah. western suburbs of, of Melbourne has really shown us how sort of fragile the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it's going to be important to follow. You know, we might not see, you know, the, the, um, the, in, the implications of that really for uh, another fortnight or e- even a month from now we might see whether or not, you know, there will be, there will have been community spread um, secondary to that or linked spread, sorry, um, uh, to that, um, so you know, I think um, you know, obviously, we'll take a, a measured approach um, in terms of sort of stepping down some of these restrictions, and that'll hopefully be continue to be supported by a robust access to, to testing, um, and then identifying you know people who are positive with the coronavirus, supporting them appropriately with you know leave and um, and housing and um, supporting them to quarantine those sorts yeah. of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be an ongoing, um, you know, challenge throughout all of this. But, you know, I think a necessary component of the, the response. But where exactly we'll be in six months' time, you know, I, I hope that, um, you know, things will be under control. We'll be living, you know, a, in a post-coronavirus mm. era, um, you know, with perhaps a, an ongoing sort of occasional case. I think, you know, one of the real changes that we have in, in Melbourne is that you're obviously heading into winter, whereas a lot yeah. of these European countries, America, are heading into... The United States, sorry, are heading into into summer and sort of conditions that don't really favour the spread of coronavirus, whereas we're heading into both a, a flu and uh, yeah. potentially coronavirus season. Um, and so, you know, I think, obviously, um, flu vaccination is an important component to yeah. the coronavirus response. Yeah. David, we're going to have to get you back on the show. Want, uh, we'll make it earlier than six months and uh, we'll check in and see how things are going at the front line. Right, no, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Spain. Thank us. you for coming on, David. Cheers, mate. Thank Cheers. You. Cheers. Bye. That was uh, Dr. David Griffin from a very, very large public hospital. Um, and uh, as I say, we will get him back on the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Do you know who we've got in the line now? We've got our mate, Professor Peter Bruckner. Excellent. Peter, you there? I am, yes. Thanks Good so morning. Much. Good morning. Thanks so much for holding on. Um, you must be I'm really... Probably- you must be really busy with uh, the pandemic because I, I, I've heard you. I've heard you on radio, and I know you do lots of other things. Tell us what's been happening for you. Well, I, I guess I've been uh, trying to sort of uh, 
I've been isolating myself uh, yeah. pretty much, um, you know, doing all the right things because I'm uh, in that old person category. Um, but <laughs> but um, I guess what, what I'm tr- the message I'm trying to get through in the, uh, in the pandemic is that, uh, you know, we, we're doing all this stuff about uh, social isolating and distancing and, uh, and everything like that. Uh, the thing we need to be doing is really getting our bodies in the best shape possible yeah. to combat any sort of uh, any insult like this uh, this virus. And it's been shown very clearly that uh, yep. people with what they call comorbidity, so obesity, diabetes, hypertension, do really badly when they get this uh, this virus. So, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, to try and get, get our sort of metabolic health sorted and uh, make us much more resilient to, uh, to things like this pandemic. So how do you do that when you're cooped up inside the whole time? Yeah, well, it's it's challenging, but uh, you know they have. Well, the good one of the good things they've done is encourage people to exercise or allow people to exercise. So you know, I've never seen so many people out uh, walking the block and uh, heading down for a takeaway coffee and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so on. And and uh, you know, you'd like to think that would continue. That people have got into the habit of exercising now and uh, they're just getting out in the fresh air. The other challenge, of course, is what we're eating, and uh, and it is a bit of a trap, I must admit. Uh, especially working at home, you know, the fridge is in the next room and, uh, you know, the pantry's just there and you're a bit bored and you think, oh, I'll go and uh, grab something to eat. So that's a challenge. But on the other hand, you know, we're, we've all been cooking at home a lot more. Well, we certainly, you know, yeah. have, and, and I think most people have, and, and that's got, a, you know, an opportunity to be a lot more healthy than, uh, than sort of takeaway foods and so on. So, again, hopefully we've uh, developed some good habits in this uh, this last few weeks that will keep going and, uh, and improve our sort of general health over the next, uh, you know, next while so we can, you know, combat the next pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Peter, what about deconditioning? So, uh, uh, you know, uh, sports athletes and um, elite sports people, how are they managing the deconditioning situation? Well, obviously it's been a challenge, but, uh, you know, they've, uh, uh, for instance, uh, you know, if you're a part of a team, so let's, let's take AFL teams as, as an example, um, the AFL players have all sort of scattered to the, the four corners of, of Australia. They're all sort of on their way back now. But uh, they've all headed to, some up to the farm, family farm, some, uh, you know, just to, uh, to their local share house. But um, so, so they've all uh, got a program. So pretty much the clubs would give them a daily program that they would, uh, that they would do. They would can take themselves down to the local park and, uh, and do a running program. They're allowed to uh, to work with one other person. So the footballers, for instance, would yeah. do kick, kicking drills with one other person, um, and so they can certainly keep their fitness up, uh, provided they adhere to the uh, the program. They can keep their fitness up pretty well. Um, they all have uh, a weights program as well. Now, most of them uh, on the what day was that? before uh, a what program weights 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 strength strength program. Yep. So uh, so they uh, you know we just. Uh, Raided the, the team gymnasium uh, before we <laughs> before we shut down and uh, distributed distributed uh, different weights to uh, to different players. Yeah. A lot of the players actually have a home gym anyway that they work out uh, over the summer and and so on. But uh, those that didn't all sort of took their uh, their dumbbells and barbells and kettlebells and all sorts of things and bands and so on home. And uh, again, the players have been sent sent a daily sort of a strengthening program as well with uh, with weights, but. You can also do a lot of stuff with just body weight. I mean, you don't really need fancy weights. You can do very good for the average hunter like uh, like us. You can do a very good strength program just using body weights and squats and push-ups and sit-ups, etc., etc. So, you know, you can be quite creative uh, without having to go to a gym. Yeah. And, 
I worry actually that uh, people may give up. Some of them may give up their gym memberships because they've realised that hey, we can do a lot of this stuff at home. Oh, oh, interesting. So for my physiotherapy mates at home or listening in, um, so they've made two observations for me. One is that there's been a few more interesting injuries for people that are doing sports that they haven't done in the past. So for example, they've suddenly taken up running. And then they've injured themselves because they haven't kind of prepared themselves and got into the right sort of balance for how to run and support themselves and not to run too far for too long. And yeah. Do you have a comment about that one? Yeah, yeah, and you'll find that's usually uh, testosterone-laden males who think they can sort of run, <laughs> run the way they used to run 20 years ago. And, uh, so yeah. So, uh, yes. yeah, hey, I used to do this and, uh, and so on instead of uh, just that patient build-up that, uh, that's required. I mean, the, the body's very good at adapting to increase load as long as that load is gradual. And uh, But, of course, we all think we can cut corners and, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's good for business. We like it. You know, it's good for business for us sportsmen and practitioners, <laughs> but it's not, uh, not great for the athletes. <laughs> And another comment was that because people have got time at home, they have been doing their exercises. They've been doing their strengthening. So compliance or adherence to the program has been seen to have improved. Well, we're all bored to tears, aren't we, really? So, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, no one could really say they don't have time to do things anymore because we've all got lots yeah, of time. That's so true. And, uh, now we all, most people probably are saving themselves two hours of travel time a day anyway, so they can uh, put that to good use. So, you know, I, I think uh, it's been a great opportunity for people to, uh, for a lot of people to get back into, uh, into regular exercise. And uh, as I said before, you know, hopefully that, uh, that nice habit will, uh, will continue even when we sort of things get so-called back to normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dr G-Spot, you uh, had a question. Thanks, Dr. Malpractice. Hi, Peter. G-Spot here. Um, I've got a question about, I suppose I work a lot with people with eating disorders and these messages around sort of health and fitness and eating right are super triggering for them during this pandemic, as well as a lot of the, the memes on social media um, about people getting large during the pandemic. And I was wondering... Um, is there a way we can moderate these messages such that we don't trigger people with eating disorders, which represent a large um, percentage of our population, sadly? Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a real problem. We've got to be so careful about the messaging around, uh, um, and, and a lot of uh, not just people with eating disorders, but, uh, but the obese and, and, the, uh, and the chronically unwell. You know, we have to be very sensitive about our, uh, our messaging. But... Uh, I think you know the the important thing is just to uh, is to promote the concept of uh, of good health and healthy lifestyle, and uh, without being sort of uh, too you know over the top about uh, about what we do. But if we can you know just eat real food and eat healthy food uh, and and exercise regularly and and uh, and tr try and take steps to reduce our stress uh, to really work on our sleep. You know I think sleep's a really important uh, factor in in our health. And if we sort of tackle all those sort of uh, things in a sort of a Calm, unemotional, sort of not getting carried away with, uh, with you know, making trying to get people to lose weight or put on weight or anything like that. If we just concentrate on doing the right things, then the sort of the health things just happen uh, automatically mm. without having to uh, having to focus on it. That's mm. that's really my philosophy on these things. Yeah, uh, I've got a comment about alcohol. So, that's, mm, no, I yeah. can imagine you would. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so. I am doing my best to have two days of alcohol-free days, but 
Oh, just even one when I come home from work. Um, I have been able to go to work, but it's been very stressful. And, you know, that, that, oh gosh, that wine when I walk in the door, pat the dog and have a wine, it's, it's, and somebody said to me, oh, don't be silly, don't try and give up in the pandemic. But I think we do have to be, be watchful of what we are consuming in the alcohol area. It's so easy to let it slip, isn't it? Just a, one glass becomes two, becomes three, and you've really got to watch that. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a real trap, you know, from all reports, you know, the, the grog shops are, uh, yeah. are the busiest, uh, the busiest shops around at the moment. Uh, you know, even uh, even more than the toilet roll. So uh, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it, it is a trap, um, and uh, it's certainly not the time to. Uh, as I agree, it's probably not the time to give up, but it's also not the time to uh, to go overboard. And so one to two drinks a night is fine. But you know, instead of uh, when you get home, sort of, uh, and you're stressed, uh, pushing for the the grog cabinet, um, take the dog for a walk. You know, go uh, do a half-hour walk when you get home and, and try and sort of de-stress yourself uh, in that way rather than looking for alcohol to, uh, to de-stress. Do you know what we did, Peter? We, um, I laughed when you said raided uh, your gym because that's exactly what I did. Um, at uh, our, our local hospital's got a gym and, you know, they made arrangements for staff that visit there that they could, you know, rent equipment and we did that. And one of the things I rented was a heavy bag. Um, oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, and um, my kids, I've got two teenagers, one who's in VCE, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty stressful, you know, watching Zoom classes the whole day. They get out there, they have a round on the heavy bag, and they come back so much more chilled. And I thought, why hadn't I discovered this like five years ago? It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly better than thumping your kids to uh, thump the, uh, the bag. Uh, yeah, I mean, people talk a lot about uh, the boxing-type activities, you yeah. know, that... Uh, uh, a, it's great for just general fitness uh, and your whole body fitness. You're really using all your all your muscles and, and so on when you're uh, when you're when you're doing boxing type uh, drills. But um, yeah, just that uh, you know, getting rid of your aggression and uh, and sort of uh, de-stressing, if you like, is, uh, yeah. is is a big factor. And yeah. I think it's a great exercise. Uh, yeah. And you know, boxing and, and heavy bag and so on is becoming, I think, more and more popular yeah. in our community and, and gyms and uh, and personal trainers and so on. So it's a it's a great exercise. Yeah, you've done well there. Yeah. Um, and, Peter, just because you know I support a football team that's coloured black and white. and uh, uh, We all uh, have a cross to bear in life. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. And I, am, I don't know how I'm going to get through winter without the Pies yeah, playing. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's your prediction? What's all this huddle business and the Crows playing up? And, oh, I know that you could probably sp- speak for 20 minutes about this, but, you know, <laughs> do you want to do a, a, a little football summary? Okay. Well, the good news is that we are going to play football and it's uh, not too far away. Um, so uh, I think what will uh, happen this week is that uh, – the, uh, the government and the AFL will announce that uh, the players can go back to training in groups of 10 uh, as of next Monday, uh, sorry, tomorrow week, uh, the 18th. Uh, they'll probably have a couple of weeks of that. But if that all goes well, they'll go into full training for a couple of weeks. And, uh, again, all going well, we'll be able to play games uh, in about a month's time, maybe five weeks' time. Uh, so that's sort of mid uh, middle of June we'll be, uh, we'll be playing and they'll squeeze the, uh, the remaining 16 rounds into... Uh, into the rest of the season, you might find that there are uh, reduced breaks between games. You know, there might be five or six, even four days between uh, between games. 
We'll be playing five nights a week, probably, which will be a nightmare for, uh, for parents. And things is probably, you know, probably Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I suspect. But uh, anyway, not a lot of homework being done in that time. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty confident, unless there's sort of a severe sort of setback in everything over the next couple of weeks, that we'll be playing footy in uh, four or five weeks' time. Do you know, Peter, you know, just what you said about uh, kids and, and sport, it really brings, this pandemic's really bring in, brought into sharp relief things that we just take for granted, like, uh, for example, my son plays uh, uh, soccer and he trains two nights a week and, you know, on, on, plays on Sunday. And, you know, it was just a normal part of life. And now that he's not doing it, we just realise how important it had been for all, I mean, it's not just about playing sport and being part of a team, it's being part of the families that go there and having that social interaction and the drive with the kids in the car and talking about it afterwards. And it's a, there's a whole kind of a ripple effect of not having that those team sports being played. And I'm thinking, I can hardly wait for it to start because it was such an important part of our lives that we kind of took for granted. Yeah, absolutely. You won't be arguing for me there. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm still involved in, in you know, community sport that my kids uh, have played and play and so on. A massively important part of our life. I mean, my, my life is structured around Tuesday and Thursday evenings and Saturdays. And now all of a sudden, you know, Saturdays are gone from being the day you look forward to to the day you dread because nothing happens anymore. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so I can't wait to, uh, hopefully not long after the AFL starts, uh, I'm hoping probably a month after that in July, there will be uh, the community sport will be uh, be back in action, and we'll play a, like a half a winter season probably through uh, through till the end of October, and then uh, uh, cricket will give up the first month of the, their season, and the winter sports will uh, will finish up in uh, in October. So yeah, really important part of uh, our community, your physically, mental health, uh, families, as you said, uh, you know, we do, you do things together with the family. Yeah, I can't wait till it all gets back to normal, and things are looking pretty good. Yeah, and Peter, just your forecast for the Olympics. Um, so that would be next year. Yeah, look, you'd, you'd like to think that things will be uh, be okay by then. Um, you know, I don't think the virus will be eliminated from the world by then. But uh, you know, it's a long way away. I mean, it's 15 yeah. months away. You know, at the moment, every week seems like a month, and every day seems <laughs> yeah. like weeks. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, so well much said. is happening so quickly. So. Very hard to predict what's going to happen, but I'd be surprised if we didn't have things under control with either a vaccine or I think even more likely than a vaccine is actually a cure uh, to, for the virus. So, uh, oh, really? you know, hopefully over the next six months uh, so there'll be developments along that line and we can sort of get back to normal next year. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. Do you know, Peter, just to come back to what you were saying about people having their home gyms, um, Man, you just, it just resonated so strongly for me because I've been spending a lot of time in my garage. And the funny thing is um, I'm meeting all my neighbours who I'd normally see like maybe once a month. Now I'm seeing them almost every day, every second day because they're you know, doing everything they can do to get outside, walk the dog just, you know, go for a cycle or something. And I've got my garage door open and we're, you know, I'm seeing them, you know, from a healthy distance away and we're having a bit of a chat across the road and they go on their way. And it's it's actually, if anything, it's brought my little suburban block closer together with everybody out doing exercising because, you know, the weather hasn't been too bad. I mean, it's you know, it's been yeah. pretty good. So it's, it's one of those weird things, social isolation, yeah, but we're kind of making more connections. It's a weird thing, hey? To the, to the community. Yeah. Community yeah, no, connection. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, look, I think there, you know, there, uh, as they say about these things, you know, there are opportunities yeah. as well as sort of disasters, really. Yes. And, and opportunities yes. have been for, yeah, you know, socialising with your neighbours, getting more exercise, eating better, all these sort of things. So let's let's grab those opportunities and run with them. Yeah. Now, Peter, we've got about a minute left. If you could leave us with, you know, 
the key things that you want to impress upon people for the next couple of months during uh, as we're coming out of the pandemic? What would that be? Let's make ourselves more resilient and stronger and healthier. So let's uh, focus on eating properly, eating real food rather than processed food. Let's focus on continuing the exercise habit that we've got into, focusing on uh, on not getting carried away with uh, with too much alcohol. If you feel stressed, go for a walk rather than uh, open that second bottle uh, EpiPen. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks, and let's, Peter. Uh, and let's make sure by the time the next uh, pandemic comes around that we're all a whole lot healthier so we can, and we're more resilient. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Peter. Great talking to you as always, and uh, be well. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks. Guys. Thanks, Peter. Now, I've learnt, uh, EpiPen, that what you do is when you say goodbye to somebody on radio, yeah. when you're on the phone, you push the button to turn off rather than get the doot, 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 <laughs> busy signal. How about that? Learn something every kind of, you know, decade, decade or so. Wow, it's been an exciting show. Hey, hey, Dr. Mel, I just want to say congrats because this has not been easy. <laughs> I'm I'm on the phone to you. You're on the phone to Peter. He's in another room. You're on this. Da, da, zoom da, 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 to, uh, to G-Spot, who's 10 to... seconds behind and has to write on a piece of paper, hey, Mal, I've got a question to ask. Yeah, it's, yeah we it's, might it's, get really good at this at the yeah, end. Yeah, eventually yeah. we have so. Yeah. Hey, look, um, thanks so much to uh, everybody. Thank you, uh, EpiPen. You're terrific as always. Thank you, G-Spot, who'll get this in 10 seconds' time. Thanks, uh, Professor Peter Bruckner. Dr. David Griffin, I'm uh, Dr. Malpractice. Don't forget that you can listen to us on the web, on podcasts through 3 Triple R. It's fantastic. Um, and uh, also listen to uh, Shrink the Virus as well. It's a fantastic podcast. Yeah, I second that. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.